How can we keep our kids happy and healthy during the COVID pandemic and beyond? If you do have children at home, can you think of a more important question in these challenging times? I, for one, cannot. The very good news is that we have just the expert to give us all the tips that we need to know on today's podcast. And I'm really very excited about it. I'm emotionally engaged because of all the friends I have out there that can use his words of wisdom. So thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Down to Earth Tucson with Mrs. Green. I'd like to start the podcast by thanking our sponsor for the show, and it's easy for me to do this. Tucson Medical Center is a very proud partner of ours, and as I have shared on our shows before, whether it's classes for seniors, support groups for people with cancer, those taking care of loved ones with Alzheimer's, and the list goes on, or now leading the charge when it comes to our community's response to COVID-19. To me, TMC is a community-based hospital making good things happen. So thank you for your support, TMC. So with me today to to provide us with some very important and extremely relevant information about kids and COVID is Dr. Sean Elliott. And he has a lot of initials after his title, which are really important. They're not just letters, but he's an MD. I'm not sure what an FAAP is, but Sean, maybe you can tell us. Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics, University of Arizona, College of Medicine, and Pediatric Infectious Diseases, TMC1. So before I bring him into the full conversation, what he's going to be sharing with us today is say no to germs, keeping kids healthy during a pandemic and beyond. And I'm very eager to hear what he has to say. But before we dive in, every once in a while, I feel compelled to share a little bit more about our guests. And this is one of those times because when I read it, it speaks volumes about this man and his dedication. So Dr. Elliot, bear with me. Um, Dr. Elliot earned his MD from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1993, followed by a pediatric residency at Children's Memorial Hospital, Northwestern University School of Medicine, and a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases at St. Louis Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine. And I just want everybody to press pause here so that we have a sense for who we have with us to share what he's going to share. And further, he was recruited to the University of Arizona College of Medicine in 1999 and served in multiple roles there. And I mean multiple, I decided not to write them all. (laughs) And I had to share this part. Sean retired from the University of Arizona after a 20-plus year career, and now he has returned to his first passions, providing pediatric subspecialty clinical care and teaching at the bedside. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has called him back to the role of content expert and consultant to healthcare systems throughout the state of Arizona, and he is happy to bring the current state of evidence to this important discussion. He is also personally invested in the ongoing discussion about returning to in-person school as his life partner is a high school teacher in one of the most underserved, resourced, and high-risk school in Arizona, which is what 
my heart aches for having had a background working with at-risk children and family. So Sean Elliott, it's wonderful to have you here and I can't wait to get on with this show. (laughs) Thank you so much for that introduction. I am so honored to be part of this. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's really well-deserved and there's so much not good information out there. So let's start with the like, bam, Okay, how bad is COVID-19 in kids? Yeah, that, that's, that's the million-dollar question. And, and there is actually good news there. Thankfully, kids end up doing quite well if they get COVID-19. Most of them are, are completely without symptoms, and those that do have symptoms are quite mild. Uh, so this is in no way to minimize the suffering and, and the distancing, which we've all been going through. But thankfully, kids end up doing quite well. Um, in Arizona, and this is probably important to know, um, our numbers do not look so very good. And I imagine that that uh, our listeners uh, have seen some of the media reports. Um, currently, uh, based on the Department of Health Services, uh, kids totally in Arizona make up almost 13% of our total COVID-19 diagnoses. This is from way back in January when we started counting. Um But before we get a little bit too anxious about that, I want to put that into perspective. Um, We in Arizona initially had a a challenge in testing everybody. We we did not have enough tests. We we know that uh, from the media. But we rapidly were able to escalate and get testing abilities to the point where, where people who were mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic contacts were able to be tested. So compared to some other states, we've done a better job of of finding or capturing those positives. So there are numbers. There are definite numbers. Arizona looks like we have a lot of of disease in kids. But again, the numbers of kids getting hospitalized and certainly the number of kids who have bad outcomes has been quite low. Thank heavens. Thank heavens. So what about like with kids? It makes sense just from a logical perspective point of view that kids are overall healthier. They don't have things that are broken or don't work as well anymore, like when you're 70 years old. But what about um, hospitalizations? Are they being hospitalized? And is there a risk involved with that? What's your sense of how that's going in Arizona? Sure. Um, Yes, some kids are being hospitalized. um, And it's mostly been children at the sort of the extremes of the spectrum. So uh, typically infants or or young children up to maybe a year of life um, are one category of of kids who are being hospitalized. Um, And then on to the other end of the spectrum, um, the adolescents, um, the the teens, and on on up into age 20. Um, Again, the numbers are low compared to the adults being hospitalized. And as you note, thankfully, kids generally don't have those so-called comorbidities, uh, which, which are risk factors for being admitted. The comorbidities that are so so common uh, are obesity, um, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. Um, so, so thankfully, kids are, are in general healthier. One other important factor, uh, and this is going to bring a little science into the picture, the, the, the location that the virus binds to, the SARS coronavirus 2, um, the spot where it attacks the human body is something called the ACE2 receptor. And I, I won't bore you with the chemical name for that, but it, it's, it's a pretty common component in the human body in adults. Children do not express much of that ACE2 receptor in their noses, in their lungs, in, in their, their human tissues 
And so it's less likely to bind or to acquire as much virus as an adult does, meaning the amount of disease is less, the amount of the immune response, the way that the child's immune system reacts to the infection is much lower. So all that factors into why children are less likely to be hospitalized and, again, why they're less likely to have severe disease. So that's a, that's a great bit of information to know. But I want to know, um, like I know from doing other research and having interviewed people over the years that there's a really high percentage of kids in Arizona that have asthma. We we have upper respiratory disease problems in our state. Are kids with asthma, I don't even know if you know the answer to this, but I'm assuming you would, are they at higher risk? That, that is a great question. And, and uh, luckily the answer is no. Great. We, we can say that because, yeah, great, exactly. And I completely agree. Asthma is one of our big challenges uh, in, in Arizona. Um, it's a big challenge in, in children in general. It's, it's one of our common diagnoses. And luckily we have studies now looking at children, um, young ages, even all the way through age 20, um, who have known asthma, uh, controlled or not, uh, and looking at their risk of getting COVID-19 and then being hospitalized. And fortunately, those numbers are no different than the average person without asthma. So I, I would have expected a different answer. I completely agree with you. Me I, too, I would have but I love the answer. The I mean, it's like a, it's, it's horrible a for kids that suffer from asthma, but it's like a double whammy if they get it. Right. And, you know, I, I will be honest, I had to look this up because I don't want to sound like I'm, um, even though my initials are Gina MD, that's just for Murphy Darling. Um, <laughs> I know that, you know, to me, I would say on the air, the news is not my friend because of, knowing who to trust and where to look and all that. But I know I saw in the early days, and maybe even as recently as about a month ago, it's called, um, it's the multi-system inflammatory syndrome where kids get rashes. Yes. And is that, because that's the thing about COVID that is so, you know, to me, like the the real fear about COVID is how much we don't know. So what about that with kids? Right. What information can you share with us about that? Absolutely. Because when they show the pictures on TV, it's awful. It's awful, right. So so, so you, you have uh, touched on, on one of the not good parts of COVID-19 in kids. And, and that is, uh, we, we sort of paraphrase it as MISCI. And you're right, M-I-S hyphen C, multi-system okay. inflammatory. Misky, right? Um, which is not how it's spelled, but there you go. So multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, and you will see it also reported as variant Kawasaki's disease associated with, with the SARS coronavirus. But you're right. Um, children with this um, are or potentially can be quite sick. Um, fortunately, again, this is a rare complication, a rare diagnosis of children who get COVID-19. Um, but those children who do, they have the rash uh, or they may have a rash. They may have um, red eyes. They may have heart failure. They may have uh, severe gastrointestinal disturbances. And if they are properly managed, meaning coming into hospital, uh, being treated effectively, um, then their outcomes are good. Um, but there have been some fatalities in other parts of the country. So that's a scary thing. And uh, rest assured that, that pediatricians and those of us who care for kids in Arizona are on the extreme lookout for that diagnosis in anybody coming in with, with COVID-19. Yeah, we're really in good hands. And then another part to that question is, 
And I, I don't want to put a lot of fear into this show because that doesn't help anybody. So that's why I want good information. But sure. a concern of mine is reading about, you know, you just don't get COVID and then some people don't live happily ever after. There are post-COVID um, conditions that are showing up and manifestations. What is your sense of how prevalent is that? What are the risks? I mean, what are you seeing from the people that you are um, connected to? Right. So, so that is, I, I think, uh, it's a great question, first of all, and it's one to which we do not have a, a complete answer yet. Um, the so-called post-COVID-19 syndrome uh, it has so far been described in adults. Again, it makes sense because adults are the ones with more of those ACE2 receptors and the likelihood of much more severe disease. Patients so far described with post-COVID-19 syndrome uh, are having uh, excessive and persistent fatigue, uh, difficulty concentrating that the so-called COVID-19 foggy brain, um, continued mood changes, difficulty remembering things, um, and, and these these symptoms are persisting for weeks to months, but the number of children reported with this, and, and even adolescents, thankfully, once again, has been quite low, uh, which makes sense. They they don't bind as much as, as the, uh, the virus. They don't have a severe disease, and so the likelihood of internal organs like the heart, the brain, the kidneys, etc., being affected long term is much lower. So there is good news there. Um, this is in no way to minimize those who currently are suffering from that very, very challenging complication. And every adult I know would rather take it for the kids than have kids who don't understand it and don't have the emotional intelligence to even know what the heck their world looks like. So to me, anything that's not impacting kids is good news. Absolutely. So now here is the really could not wait to talk to you about this because of friends. Um, our show producer, Kelly King, has two amazing kids. One of them started middle school and the other is a year in. And there's just authentic sharing of the, you know, two totally educated, patient, loving, supportive parents and the challenges that it's presenting to their family and the angst and the nervousness, especially with one of their kids. So, what does a return to in-person school look like? Uh, you know, as a mother mm -hmm. who's so glad I don't have little kids, I'm so glad I don't have to make that choice. So what what is your wisdom for us? What is being used to guide your decision or your answer? So talk to us about what a return to in-person school look should look like. Sure. Okay. So so um I think that the conversation about this needs needs to look at two separate and very important factors. That the first is the risk to children uh, of, of going back to school in terms of getting COVID-19. Um, the second issue, and, and equally, in fact, even more important, is the risk from children uh, who go to school, get COVID-19, and bring it back home. Um, the first part is, is we, we, we sort of already touched on, the risk to children, thankfully, blessedly, uh, is still of a mild disease without a huge, huge, huge risk of, of major complications. Yes, it does happen. This is not a zero event. So um, on, on one extreme, if we never go back to school in the COVID-19 pandemic, then we'll avoid uh, children getting exposed to, infected with, and potentially having bad complications of COVID-19. But that's not realistic. 
The other end of the story, though, the risk from children, and and this is, I think, where a lot of the conversation has centered, because we know from experience based on influenza and other uh, respiratory infections that that children have been quite good at transmitting viruses which they acquire at school back into their their community, into their home situation to uh, to potentially family members who are at risk. Um, and, and here we have some data to help us as well based on other parts of the world. It looks like uh, in uh, South Korea and Italy, where large studies have been performed, that children under age 10 uh, have a much lower risk of transmitting virus to their family than do children ages 10 through 19. So we could think kindergarten through fifth grade easily um, are lower risk, middle school, high school, higher risk. Uh, and that, that's compared to adults in the same outbreak setting. Um, so it's, it's that risk then, I think, which is being targeted uh, in uh, the discussions and the preparations to return to school. First things first, can we reasonably create a safe school environment uh, safe for the students, safe for the teachers, and ultimately safe for the families of the students, where, where there's limited transmission in the school setting. And this this is the the uh, social distancing between the desks, the plexiglass shields, the wearing of masks, the the washing of hands, um, and and with enough preparations and enough resources, that could be achievable. Knowing that not every child is going to be able to keep a mask on all day long. Not every child will be able to effectively wash hands. So, so that that is a solution. It's not a perfect solution. Um, the other part of the conversation then has to be how bad is the COVID nineteen transmission in the community? Meaning, how much disease are we really looking at? And if it's a huge amount, we honestly cannot, and I I would say should not uh, accept the risk of transmission from school back to home. Uh, because kids are, are going to be imperfect at, at covering their mouth and cleaning their hands. If though, and here's the here's where the metrics and the benchmarks come in from the governor and from Arizona Department of Health Services, if we are at a point in each community where the amount of the virus, the amount of disease is much lower, then that means the actual risk of transmission is low as well. And that risk versus benefit uh, ratio, if you will, uh, becomes more in favor of going back to school. Why go back to school? And, and here I think is a critical third part of your, your question. Um, why go back to school? Be, because children are suffering not being in school. Um, right. Certainly our, our, right, exactly. I mean, any, any, any parent, anybody who has been a student knows this. Um, the lack of socialization, the lack of, of in-person teaching, um, the students who already were at risk in terms of, of learning plans and educational challenges, all of these populations are being negatively affected. And, and we have proof of that. We, we know that the, the risks and actually that the presence of depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, addiction, all these horrible negatives that can only be addressed by support, 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 and in-person counseling, all of these are shooting through the roof right now. We know this. So, so this, is, this is, of course, not a simple balance of risk versus benefit. We want to get the kids back to a safe environment. We want to get them educated. Uh, we want them to have access to social support systems through the school districts that they deserve and they, they have to have. But we want that to happen safely for everybody involved. 
Um, so there you go. It's a complicated issue. Um, and, and I think it would be... It's a very complicated issue. <laughs> it sure is. And, and I, you know, I have this vision of you when we come back to Tucson coming over to my socially distanced backyard so I can ask you like 500 more questions. But <laughs> this is what happens when you're talking to me and I'm listening and I'm being fully present and worked with at-risk kids my entire life. And it's such such an emotional issue for me. Yes. And my team and I talk about it all the time. It's just widening the great divide. And I can use Kelly as an example because she's our show producer and she knows that I talk about her and her kids on the air. Two highly educated parents. Kelly works from home. Mort works from home now because Raytheon is not having people report in. And we talk about the kids who don't have a Kelly and a Mort, who don't have, they have a single mom who's still working two jobs trying to put put food on the table, or a, a mom who may not speak English but cares deeply about her kid's education. And sometimes I sit there and think, so this mom has a choice for putting her kid in school and maybe getting COVID and then she has to take off work and blah, 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 or... Mm-hmm having them stay home where the nine-year-old is helping the five-year-old. So it's just, it's it's not a question I'm asking you to answer, of course, but I know that you recognize it's so complicated and so many layers. Absolutely, absolutely. So what can we do to keep ourselves and our kids healthy? <laughs> What's the real deal? Let's get happy here. I went down a very dark hole there because it hurts. <laughs> But it's a necessary hole to go through, and and I, I hope these conversations continue to occur. I, I know they are. Um, so so you're right. But on the positive side, what what can we do to protect ourselves, our kids, our, our life, our home? Um, and, and here again, um, the the virus is is it behaves like other viruses do. It 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 is the virus. It is susceptible to hand washing. It is susceptible to, to cleaning. It's, it's very difficult to be transmitted if one has a barrier in place like a mask. So, so um, we, we already talked about some of the interventions in, in the school setting, um, but at home too. Uh, for example, um, those who work outside the house and have an at-risk person living at home, perhaps, uh, you know, a nana, a grandma, a grandpa living at home, uh, somebody who's older than 65, um, this this is where staying six feet away, covering the cough, wearing the mask, washing the hands, all these things are simple, accessible uh, interventions that are so powerful and so effective if they're performed all the time. So is there a way for a nine-year-old to have a COVID birthday party? Is there a safe way to do that? Well, uh, uh, the, the short answer is maybe. <laughs> this is like stump the doctor. <laughs> this is the. I'm sorry. You you know there are 13 people who who have birthday parties planned. They want to know the answer to this. So. Yes. So, so yes, exactly. So it it, it is possible. Um, a, a socially distanced birthday party. This is nothing like what any of us have gone through when when we were children. Um, but if it's outside, that already reduces the risk significantly. Right. Um, um, if it's outside and the kids are doing activities which keep them mostly far apart, that's good too. Um, keeping in mind again that the risk of transmission from child to child and child to to parents at home 
is still pretty low, below age 10. Right. So that kind of a birthday party uh, versus the the adolescent uh, sweet 16 party, these are two different parties. Very different. Very different. Yes, especially between 9 and 16. I'm thinking about my own, what I was doing at 9 and what I was doing at parties at 16, which we will not be sharing on the air. Um, Right. Thank you very much. So it takes an, so, it takes yeah. another level of planning and consciousness and thoroughness, but you could still potentially make it fun. Yes, absolutely. And I think important in this too is is social responsibility. So um, parents of children invited to the birthday party, if their child has a fever the night before, that, that is not a child that should be going to the birthday party. I mean, I would hope people do the right thing to protect everybody else. Um, so so it, it's reasonable of putting a party together to ask for a symptom screen. Has anybody at home been sick with anything in the preceding three days? Certainly, please, if there was a fever in the last 24 hours, don't come to my party. <laughs> send the gift, but don't come yourself. Yes, right? Right. send the yeah. gift, right. And there are things you can do. I mean, I was a mom and yeah. just having craft projects at different stations and all that stuff, there are things. But when I think about... The, the sadness for me is what kids are getting to miss in terms of just being free and not burdened with all of these things. I think that's one of the hardest parts for me as a mom and a grandma to get my head around. So um, right. my last question for you is, and, and really, I don't play stump the guest ever. That's not that's not my style. Oh, no, but here it comes. No, no, no. It's just like, take a deep breath. <laughs> um, one of the hardest things for me is finding sources that I trust. And I just had a conversation yesterday from someone very active in the um, climate adaptation and mitigation movement. And, you know, it's the story. Her sister is very high up in Mm -hmm. some public office as a doctor. And she said to me, and she just flat out said, you know, the CDC is compromised. And whether or not that's true is not my question. But where can people go like me, like Kelly, like our listeners to try to find some trusted information these days? There's so much noise and I don't want to listen to any of it. So I'm finding more um, Amazon Prime series to binge watch at 10 o'clock at night instead of watching the news for my own mental health. So we're... You have access to things that we don't because you're a medical professional, highly respected. Where does someone like me who really cares about myself, my family, and my community, where do we go? Yeah, that that, that thank you for this question. It, it's a very important one. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I, I understand um, certainly how, how many would have questions about the 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 national organizations such as the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, the FDA, um, because there have been some challenges in, in recent recent times. Um, but the professional organizations, and, and here I'm thinking specifically for kids of the American Academy of Pediatrics, okay. um, and especially it's it, it statewide chapters, the AAP, uh, nationally, internationally, very active, has incredibly good, strong, well-meaning people involved. Um, but they have to be somewhat careful because there, there are there are lobbyists and political elements there as well. But the local chapters, um, the local professional societies, and especially the local doctors, um, in this specific case, um, our own pediatricians are going to be excellent sources of objective, child-centric recommendations and information that's believable. Um, 
and and I guess just as a general sense, when I look at uh, data coming through, I, I consider the source. I consider whether there's the potential for bias. Um, and as objective as the data can be, that's what I want to see. Um, our local pediatricians are getting that data through me and through our Arizona chapter of the AAP um, in a similar fashion. So they are prepared to answer those very difficult questions. So I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of person to person or, or to telehealth uh, question answering. Uh, I, I'm, I'm nervous uh, about getting all of our information from the internet because that's not so-called peer review that that hasn't gone through a review process to make sure that it's it's not false. Um, so I, I would I would hope to send our parents uh, and our older kids even um, to professional organizations and their own doctors to get those questions answered. That's a great answer. <sighs> that is really a great answer. You. Know your source. And like I, for one, I've decided flat out, I believe Dr. Fauci. I do. Yes. I think he's a tough guy from Brooklyn and nobody's going to bully him, and I trust him. So he has not in any I way given me reason. I'm so glad. Yes. I'm so glad. And when yeah. he's slammed in the media, I'm like, you are all idiots. He's trying to save our lives. Yeah. Um, it would kind of be fun for to have a YouTube channel for me watching TV and the rants I have. <laughs> Because I say a lot of things to the TV, my whole family, we're all, you know, we talk to the television quite a bit, even though we're trying to restrict our um, answers. One thing before I forget, which yes. was in my notes, and I just looked at them, mm -hmm. and I really am happy to pull this Band-Aid off because of where I stand on it. Vaccinations, vaccinations, yes. vaccinations. yes. It's like so important. And I got duped for a little while, like maybe three months, mm -hmm. long time ago about autism. And it was a scam. God help the people that, that promoted that. Right. But thank God I vaccinated my kids and that my grand, my grand, my little grandbaby is vaccinated. It's like, please, people, you're a big, hard, no questions, yes on that, right? Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that, that subject to the air as well. 100%. Um, and and I, again, I understand that, that a reasonably thinking person is going to have questions about vaccine safety. Ask the questions of the pediatrician. Yes. Get the answers. Yes. Please, please don't make an assumption based on somebody else who may have an agenda, whatever that happens to be. Right, uh, right. And along those lines, we need to be considering flu vaccination very strongly this year. I mean, every year, of course, because it is not a safe infection to have for anybody. But this year, especially, the healthcare systems are already overburdened. Um, to get the flu and have to go to the hospital right now is going to be a very challenging thing. So, oh my gosh, um, do you vaccinate, know? Vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Do you know Mimi Kumler? I certainly do. From TMZ. Yes. So Mimi sees me one day, and she looks at me with those eyes, and she said. Have you gotten your flu shot yet? <laughs> and I was waffling. I admit it. I had never gotten a flu shot. And I said, I'm actually on my way right now. And she started <laughs> laughing, but I got a flu shot last year Good for the first for time. And my husband is going to get one. And that's what she said, Gina, you're Mrs. Frickin' Green. You have to protect others as well. This is not a, just a selfish decision. It's, it is selfless. And I went and got it and sent her a picture of the little button, you know, the little yep. decal I got. I got my flu shot. So I got a high five. So um, this has been just amazing to me. And I, I usually end with some last words, which I would like to. Um, 
So what I just learned, what everyone listening to this just learned from Dr. Sean Elliott matters so very much. And from where I sit, these past months have been some of the most challenging of my lifetime. And I'm one of the very lucky ones, very, very blessed, very privileged to be able to live this pandemic out in the way that I am. But I have lots of friends with children and full-time jobs who are struggling, who are confused, who are worried about what the right thing to do is when it comes to their children's education and their safety and dealing with all of the layers that come with the decisions they make. I, for one, am so grateful to TMC for making it possible for you to be on the show and spend time with us, for the important, credible information you shared with us, and for everything that you and TMC and our hospitals in Arizona continue to do to support all of us with this ongoing health crisis. And as I have said before, TMC is the community hospital for me and all that that implies. So I hope that everybody, all our listeners, enjoyed and learned from you as much as I did. And I always end with my final thanks to you, our listeners, because without you, there would be no us. So thanks for being a part of this. So do you want to have any other farewell or anything else you want to say, Dr. Elliot? It's been a wonderful way to spend this time for me. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to share knowledge. And thank you for helping us get the message out. Social responsibility, wash those hands, take care of our kids. Going to do it. Those are three key missions. We are going to SEO the heck out of this, as I say. <laughs> We're get it out there because I think there's people all over the country that will want to hear this podcast. We just have to let them know that it's here. So thank you. And I really do hope our paths cross someday. You never know. It's a small town. It certainly is. Look for me on the basketball court. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody. I love it. I hope they got that joke. Sean Elliott. I hope so, too. 